Good evening. This is Cinema 60. and still very small in the photo. Mm -hmm. And a very small idea from a secret agent. I think it's better to have a small idea of a situation than no idea at all. Now, my old friend Hubert. Oh, save it, Bill. I get the message. It's Japan. Bonjour, Bart. Ah, bonsoir, mon ami. That's all I got. I can't do anything <laughs> else French. But guess, guess uh, what today is? It's another bootleg Bond episode. Your favorite. It's your favorite episode. It's been a while since we've done one. Yeah, seven episodes. That's the pattern, right? 007. Yeah, we've, we've got some guest episodes mixed in there. Those don't count. I mean, they count. They're great. Listen to them, but... No, I mean, it's, some might find them more interesting than the regular episodes, but we're not counting them in our overall uh, OCD scheme of things. Well, if you remember, the the first one was episode seven, which was for James Bond completely. We we both got a little drunk and, and just like hammered that out real quick. <laughs> and then uh, we moved on to now Bootleg Bond, and we will continue to move on to Bootleg Bond every 007 episodes, not including Asterix, the guest episodes, which are special. That's what you think. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot take too many more of these. What do you mean? Last time we talked about Matt Helm and we talked about the other guy. <laughs> Derek Flint. Yeah, that's right. Helm and Flint, episode 14. And uh, you loved it. What a great episode. <laughs> it's sitting through these movies that really bums me out. They're so boring. I mean, this is a perfect example I'm going to bring it up now right at the top of the episode, how there's a difference between story and plot. Bond movies and bootleg Bond movies have plots, but they have no story. There are no character arcs. Nobody, <laughs> it doesn't matter why anybody is doing anything. There's nothing holding you to the screen other than, you know, some exotic locations and stuff blowing up. It's so not what I'm interested in. And it's so hard to get through these movies. And you're telling me that normal Bond has that? No, I'm saying none of the Bonds. Although, you know, the Daniel Craig, I have to say, those try a little bit to have some story. But uh, no, James Bond, 007, no story. Plenty of plot, plenty of stuff blown up, but no story. But you like Bond. Didn't we establish that? Or how, how drunk was I? No, no. <laughs> but you've seen all these I movies. I like less than you do. <laughs> really? I think so. I don't know. I don't know if that's possible. I think the difference is I grew up with Roger Moore as James Bond and loved those movies as a kid. Revisiting them recently, I realized they're terrible movies. <laughs> Even The Spy Who Loved Me, which uh, I always considered the absolute pinnacle of Bond. It's just a Bond movie. Just stuff happening. Well, I guess I'm a glutton for punishment because <laughs> there is something infinitely interesting to me about ripoffs of things that I'm already not very interested in. <laughs> <laughs> and this, I, I will say, is one of the founding tenets of Back Row, which is my other site, you know, and especially with uh, like uh, 
Dan and Carlo on have their own uh, little section on, on that podcast called Hoser Horror, where they're always talking about like these sort of strange Canadian movies that were made with low budgets and people don't remember. And yet they're always like fascinating and bizarre and strange and fun. And so like, I'm, I'm, I don't know if maybe like part of me is like hoping to find something like that, some kind of like hidden, so ridiculous that it's amazing gem. And I got to say that I don't know that I found that in this one whatsoever. And maybe I should announce now what this episode's about if you didn't already read the title of it. But we're going to talk about OSS 117. I think I'm, I'm going to insist that you say OSS 117. 117? Because that sounds a whole lot better than uh, 117 or 117. 117. Yeah, so just think like Sunday set. Like, oh, we should put the nice sheets on the bed today. Oh, you mean the Sunday set? <laughs> well i'll try otherwise i'm gonna i i always defaulted to 117 and i always thought god that takes so long to say (laughs) by the time i've said that someone stabbed me in the back and shot me with a sniper rifle and thrown me off of a yacht and put me into the laser shark pit so you also have another feature on back row cinema called we watched it so you don't have to. And <laughs> this is absolutely the episode of Cinema 60 where that title applies. I'm just going to come right out and say, <laughs> do not bother watching <laughs> any of the original OSS Sunday set movies because they're all, even the best one, which I think we agree is the Brazil one, is, uh, or I guess there are two Brazil ones, aren't there? They're all in Brazil, yeah. all these movies. <laughs> Even the updated one with Jean Dujardin. Which, I mean, confess right now, that's the whole reason we've watched (laughs) these terrible movies is because you have a real thing for Jean Dujardin and those recent spoof movies. I'm not going to deny the fact that I have a big crush on him. And whenever he smiles, it makes a little piece of my heart melt a little bit. But the reason I have a crush on him is those movies, though. Like, it's the completely ridiculous sense of humor that those movies have mixed with, like, the straight retelling of the most ridiculous thing, but with, like, a knowing sense of humor. That's also a a great example of taking a sort of blue humor to its utmost hilarity by showing how ridiculous the person who says all these, like, sexist and bigoted things is, (laughs) as opposed to trying to, like, laugh about him saying something that's inappropriate. So, like, Michelle Hazanavicius, I think, is is who I love, maybe. <laughs> and I saw him. He came to New York a couple of years ago, and they played those movies back-to-back in quad cinema, and it was the best day of my life, so. <laughs> but this is an interesting one for bootleg bonds because old 00SS son descent. <laughs> O-double-S. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep trying. There's got to be a faster way to say his name. Just remember Sunday set. <laughs> I'm going to say Saturday set. You know me. I took Italian. I don't know anything about French. But this came out even before James Bond existed, which is really interesting. And so the fact that Bond became the more popular and this one became the bootleg despite actually being not only published, the books were originally published before Bond, but the movies came out even before Bond. Well, at least the first one. Right, Jean Bruce, the author, wrote the first OSS 117 book four years before Ian Fleming wrote the first Bond book, I believe. Yeah, and it's interesting. So, like, I, it was really hard to find information about Jean Bruce online, at least in English. 
I'm sure, again, if I was not a shitty American who, who barely speaks like speaks like one in like one quarter of another language, then I could have <laughs> found a lot more information. But I actually I did find some really good information on a website called Double O Section because there's really not much in English about this. And they found it on the DVD liner notes for a French DVD release and were nice enough to translate it. So Bruce wrote about 90 novels for OSS Sundisset starting in 1949, years before Bond came out. And that's kind of all I've got about him. I'm really curious as to who this guy was, though I will say that he died in 1963, which is a bummer because that's basically right when this rash of movies we're about to talk about came out and then kind of can't like, you know, arced in, in a very perfect arc actually of, of upward and then a sharp downward turn. So he died in 63 in a car accident while he was driving his Jaguar, which is actually a pretty Euro spy way to go out. So, you know, power to him. And then after that, his wife, who is named Josette took over and wrote like hundreds more novels as Jay Bruce literally hundreds apparently (laughs) i saw numbers anywhere from 40 to 140 so uh (laughs) god knows but she at least continued the legacy and and was involved in writing the scripts for some of these movies which is sort of interesting but so this is a whole thing this is a definitely a french thing there were there haven't been many that were translated into english whatsoever only a couple dozen out of the hundreds that exist but i guess everyone was got had euro spy fever over there (laughs) During the, you know, the 50s to the 60s. So, like, then there's the the first movie came out in the late 50s. And you watched this, and I couldn't. Because, I mean, number one, it didn't come out in the 60s, so I was being a little lazy. But number two, it exists only in the most horrendous condition on, like, YouTube, basically. <laughs> yeah, the first movie is called Ossessondisset n'est pas mort, is not dead. And it came out in 57, and... The only thing interesting about it is that it is so different than what the Eurospy genre would come to be in the 60s. It's very much in like a French noir detective fiction vein. The main character, we haven't even mentioned his name yet. Hubert Bonisseur de la Basse. <laughs> See, you said that really well. <laughs> I practiced. He's an American secret agent of French descent. He's meant to be from Louisiana. Number one, there's absolutely nothing Louisiana about anything of any of these films. So that that just seems like basically they were trying to... He's like a CIA agent, which I also kind of thought was funny that the French James Bond is American. Yeah. <laughs> it felt like, like, why are you guys cutting yourselves short? Or like, do you think that only Americans can be this masterfully... Sexist. Spy <laughs> Yes, <laughs> I mean, it's weird. The whole thing is strange, actually. And also, I can't imagine some guy with a name like Hubert Bonisard de la Basse that's going to be living in America. But Well, we find out in the final chapter of uh, OSS Sondisset that he's, uh, we meet his French family. But that's, that's at the end of the episode. We won't get into that yet. This language stuff is nuts. I mean, uh, he's American... But he speaks French fluently. Okay, I I get that. That's fine. But he goes to every country in the world in these movies and speaks French with every person he meets. And they all speak (laughs) fluent French back to him. It's fine. You know, they're making this for a particular audience. So you just have to accept that the language that this is in is the 
common tongue of everybody who's in this movie. But you also can watch all of these OSS Sondiset movies in English if you choose. I, I chose to watch them all in French. Oh, I totally watched them in English. You did? Yeah. It was great. <laughs> wow. I wonder how different our perspectives will be based on the fact that we watched these movies in different languages. They would sometimes lapse back into the wrong language. So I got a little bit of both. But I think, wait, we have to stop and we have to talk. I, I, you know, you're right. We, we said his name, but we also have to establish exactly who... Hubert Bonisseur <laughs> de la Batte. <laughs> who he is. Unlike James Bond. Or like James Bond. Let's compare and contrast a little bit. Like James Bond, he's I a can't. sexist asshole. You can't. He has no personality. There's nothing <laughs> that carries over from movie to movie in this series. Like, he's got nothing to distinguish him in any way. He's just like this blank, sexist, athletic guy who shoots people. <laughs> and <laughs> there's nothing to him. That's my kind of man. Yeah, we should also mention that there were four different actors within a 10-year period here that had to play him, which we will get into the reasons behind that. But I agree that he completely lacks personality. I would actually say that he's more defined by the fact that there was always a woman that backstabs him. <laughs> like there's always some sexy woman that meets him at an airport and then later screws him over. And uh, I think that's like his most defining characteristic. Yeah. <laughs> there are certain really weird tropes in these movies that just keep coming back. <laughs> oh, yeah. there's He has one line about every time there's a woman, he says, you know, I've always had a dream about a woman with blue eyes. Or if it's a blonde woman, I've always had a dream about a woman with blonde hair or brown eyes. He goes through every single, you know, and it's like they, they kind of try to make it into this sort of running joke, but it's not funny and it's just dumb. <laughs> well, that's just the Frederick Stafford version of him, which actually has a hair more personality than any of the other versions of, of this character. But So makes you really like Jean Dujardin. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should mention the, that Jean Dujardin is playing OSS 117 as a French secret agent, as opposed to the original character who is a CIA agent. So that's kind of a major change for these recent spoofs that happened. True. And also the fact that it's a parody. Though the last movie that we're going to talk about was supposedly <laughs> a parody. But I don't know about that. So anyhow, so we, we talked about there is that one in the 50s that I did you and you watched some of it at least, right? Did you you get any sense of it or? No, I, I couldn't understand what the hell was going on. <laughs> it was, I gave up and it, it's such a poor quality it's interesting because... It's poor quality and it's really low budget is the thing. Super low budget. Well, so is, so is the first of the Andre Unevel ones. But yeah, this 50s one, it actually had some atmosphere because it's got kind of this noir, nighttime sort of detective story sort of atmosphere to it. But it's interesting because Uber is a totally different sort of type of character than the 60s version of him, the, the James Bond type. He's not unattractive, but he's, you know, he's got a mustache. He, he's like almost middle-aged and not athletic at all. And he's just sort of maybe a little bit like uh, William Powell as the thin man sort of feel about him. And he's so different than what this Euro spy hero would become in the 60s that it's it's interesting for that reason. But 
don't sit down and try and watch this movie and make any sense out of it or enjoy it. It purely exists for historical interest, and, and that's about it. Although I might say the same about the rest of these movies, that they're, they, they pretty much only exist for historical interest. There's no reason for a modern audience to revisit any of these. And I'm sure I'll say that same exact thing in, in several different ways throughout this episode. These movies are terrible. Don't bother. We're going we're gonna to get through these as fast as we can and get the episode over with. I'm going um, to straight up say that I actually think there is something that's kind of interesting about these movies. But it's not the movie. <laughs> Actually, I should also mention that in 1960, there was another movie called Le Bal d'Espion, which is like the dance of spies or the ball of spies. That was based on one of Jean Bruce's OSS 117 novels, but they, they had the rights to the novel, but not the character. So Right, they had to um, change his name. Yeah, they called him Brian Cannon, and he was played by Michel Piccoli, and this movie just does not exist anywhere. There, I couldn't even see a French-language version of it, you know, with no subtitles. It just, you can't see this movie. So it would have been a nice addition to this episode, maybe, to see this. It was translated as Danger in the Middle East in, uh, in English-speaking countries, but it is OSS in all but name, but we couldn't see it. Yeah, we couldn't even see the bootleg of the bootleg bond, so... So then the first movie here is going to be, well, actually, you say it because it's French. came out in 1963. OSS 117 Sudishan. Which is OSS 117 is Unleashed. And this is directed by, what, Andre Hunebel? Yeah. Probably the only movie in this series where the English-language title resembles the French-language title. <laughs> and it stars Kerwin Matthews, who is an American. And I just got to, if, if the name doesn't ring a bell, <laughs> <laughs> um, I got to read the line from his biography on IMDb, which I just loved, because all it says, quote, before there was a George Lucas and a Harrison Ford running around creating special effects excitement, there was a virile, boyishly handsome actor named Kerwin Matthews who was <laughs> entertaining audiences battling a variety of creatures courtesy of a pioneer special effects guru, Ray Harryhausen. I wonder if he wrote that bio himself. I think he died before IMDb, but I also think his ghost came back and wrote that bio. <laughs> He was uh, most recognized as Sinbad from the 1958, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. And uh, he actually, at the time when OSS came out, he had gotten out of a seven-year contract with Columbia. And this was his first chance at sort of remaking his career to get away from these Harryhausen movies. And funny enough, it was a hit. This movie that we're about to shit on, it was the 14th most popular film in France that year. <laughs> and it also landed him a sequel, which we're going to talk about. But let's unpack this movie. What? There's nothing to unpack. There's not, <laughs> literally nothing to unpack. It is the most boring <laughs> B movie you've ever seen. There's no camp value. It is, you know, some underwater stuff, some above water stuff. It's nothing. There's nothing here for anybody to be interested in. This movie opens 
with a 15 minute setup of watching a guy get up, leave his house in real time, walk <laughs> to a boat, just wait on the dock for a girl to arrive, and then exchanging straight up pleasantries like, hello, hey, how are you? Oh, I am doing good. How are you doing? <laughs> and then it goes, cuts right into some boat chats with like corny yee yee music with like a mandolin. And that's it. Like, that's your introduction. <laughs> and that's not even our main character that we that's follow. That's none of the main characters. <laughs> it's completely useless. And then the second that the very long title sequence ends, then these guys go diving. And then they're down there and there's like all these glamour shots of them diving until finally someone gets murdered. <laughs> and it's the type of thing where you're like, oh, my God, like the pacing in this movie is terrible. Like I cannot emphasize how horrible the pacing was in this. I think that this movie, too, I had to coach you through even getting through. <laughs> I was ready to give up cinema 60 altogether with this movie i i I said i was done (laughs) it took me so many tries to get through this thing i didn't fast forward at all but i got through it after several tries there's so many underwater fights and you can't tell what is happening because you can't (laughs) tell who it is well to be fair thunderball is the same way thunderball at least you can like recognize the color of people's shorts like this is black (laughs) and white so like there's like literally nothing it's not even a matter of like oh i don't think that's the actor it's like i just don't know who the heck's who they're all in like full-on scuba gear like it's just crazy plus all of this stuff which is like clearly shot in location and you can barely tell there's like no glamour shots i don't even remember where this was like the french riviera or something no it's corsica oh Corsica. <laughs> like you don't even know like you can't tell there's nothing identifiable about this half of it is just like literally in the water and the other half of it is in like a really crummy apartment complex (laughs) the plot is something about atomic submarines uh and people stealing them for none of these movies are we going to really go through the plot because they're so convoluted and they're so nutty and they're so bland and as you said they don't matter (laughs) like they literally don't matter as little as they matter in the actual bond movies they seem to matter even less (laughs) so true (laughs) I will say, though, that there is some camp in this movie. Whether or not it lands is a very solid question. But, like, they do establish that OSS is a total creep. You know, Kerwin Matthews is cute, but, like, he has absolutely no game. He's, like, kind of creepy. Like, there's that scene where he forcefully grabs a woman and then kisses her. And then she's like, oh, you have a great grasp on the French language. (laughs) And it's like, oh, my God, like, this is just that. That's it. That's the only charm you have to go on. Or there's a scene where is it is it him or is it the bad guy? I don't even remember. I have literally the note cracks a nut threateningly with his fingers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, that's basically it. There is a woman who gets interrogated about what whether or not she's working with the bad guys and working with, I think it's the Russians who are stealing the atomic submarines from the Americans. And she's she talks about how she's like, well, I sleep with this guy, but I'm not in love with him. And I was like, yeah, good for you, 1963 <laughs> France. Well, then there's the, what's really going on in this movie is there's some very vague part of it where her family is being threaten like the bad guys will kill her family if she doesn't cooperate with them she's working with the bad guys but she's a good guy and only has to be bad to protect her family 
So little is discussed about this in the movie <laughs> that I hate to even mention it, but the good girl is a bad girl, but she's really a good girl, and which seems to be a pattern for most of these movies. Yeah, I was going to say, actually. and it certainly <laughs> doesn't stop old OSS from slapping the shit out of her. Uh, you know, to get what he wants. Even then later on, it turns out that she's innocent. He's like, well, whatever. And like moves on. <laughs> yeah. So this movie, I mean, that that's it. Like that's the movie. Like, you know, there's riveting footage of a car making a three point turn without power steering, <laughs> you know, like that, that's what we've got. That's what we're working with. So this is 1963. Same year as Dr. No, the first bond movie. And it's sort of clear that the departure this movie has made from the first OSS Sunday set movie is it's just a brightly lit adventure movie. Looks a lot more like Bond, but I, I can't necessarily accuse it of ripping off Bond yet at this point. I just think there is some, you know, zeitgeist here. The, you know, these spy novels, I guess, have been pretty popular for a little while so various countries have been attempting to make movies out of them so i feel like this movie senses there's something in the air but it's not looking at dr no and saying oh we've got to do that let's try and reproduce that but the next movie which is depending on how you want to translate it shadow of evil or panic in bangkok <laughs> French title is Banco à Bangkok pour OSS Sondisset, which is like a gambling term, bet the bank on Bangkok or something like that. Um, this one definitely shows the first signs of being very much trying to capitalize on the whole Bond thing. Yeah, I mean, this is 1964. It's shot on location in Thailand, and it has a whole bunch of stunts. Like now, I mean, I will say that one thing that gave me a lot of pleasure is the fact that OSS is only ever in very tiny cars, <laughs> <laughs> like like comically tiny cars. But this time he gets some real action in his tiny car. I enjoyed this movie. It's not a good movie, but I enjoyed it. Basically, Hubert gets sent to Thailand because some other OSS agent got murdered. And then there's a plague... And there's medicine that is being made in Bangkok that they think has been, like, infected with the plague or something like that, right? Yeah. The The main thing to take away from this movie is that the bad guy is named Dr. Sin. With two ends. <laughs> and he wear, he's a magician, hypnotist, healer, and he wears a cape. And I loved him. Portrayed by Robert Sin, who's in... Two of these movies. Right, as, as different, different characters. characters. <laughs> <laughs> but this was his introduction in this movie. Uh, and I think that the description of this movie has more charm and character than, than watching this movie does. Like, now, granted, finally, they have uh, hired an editor. <laughs> it's in color. There's some really great shots of Thailand in the 60s, actually. And that's the thing I really loved about this movie is it's like almost even a tourist video for the things you can come and see in Thailand. And it's so fun to look at this stuff in the 60s. And it's it's not even just like 
the way that James Bond would always go for these sort of like rich and ritzy places like this actually gets down into some like marketplaces and there is like the really fancy hotel, but like also you just get to see what the airport looks like. I mean, like there's like really fun, great locations, I thought, like genuinely great locations. And then they end up eventually in, in like a jungle and all of this. And then they have a like it ends with a major shootout in like some temple, uh, you know, with explosions. And I'm sure that was totally inconsiderate to anyone in Thailand, but... <laughs> The locations are great. Uh, there's And there's also some genuinely good cinematography in this movie. Like, I have to say, like, things are framed nicely, but the pacing sucks. And here's the thing that happens with all of these movies is that it's still the 15 minutes of people, you know, walking to get somewhere. And, like, they're so backloaded with things in the first hour of this movie. And it's like a two-hour-long movie, basically. And all of these are almost two-hour long. That's Nothing happens. He shows up at the airport. He, like, hangs out a little bit. He wastes his time. He, like, never, ever stops to think if there's anyone who can help him or he never has any connection. And then he eventually meets, like, some local agent who's super useful and actually sets things in motion. And it's like, dude. Well, we've also got Pierangeli, who's an Italian starlet who appeared in a good number of American films. And so, you know, we've got a bit more of a budget here and we're trying to appeal to an international audience and it's this is the first of a run of three i guess where they really do sort of feel like come to bangkok come to tokyo come to rio like they're tourist films where you really get sort of into the culture of these cities and can enjoy them on that level anyway the stories such as they are or i guess i should say plots because i want to put a point on the fact that there's definitely no story there's there's no character there's there are no arcs nobody learns anything it's just stuff happens but that's this genre i am impressed with the fact that oss is always really respectful in these movies i think until the end until that last film all of these movies are really respectful of the local agents in these other countries way more ever than i felt from bond like, the Thai agents in this are smart and useful. <laughs> There's no cracks that he makes at their expense, you know? Like, and, and so I thought that was actually kind of cool. And continually mm -hmm. throughout all these movies, I thought that was sort of a neat thing. And then the bad guys are always, like, Nazis. Yeah, it's all master race type yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's like eugenics. And then... <laughs> There's always some layer where they're all like hanging out. So it's like like the general positioning of all of this stuff is pretty positive, I suppose. <laughs> but there is one thing in this movie that I thought was super fucked up, which is when he basically sends like a layman to get murdered in his stead. Right when he gets off the airport, he gets in a cab. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he sees that he's being followed by guys with like who are loading guns. And so he goes to the cab driver and he's like, hey, man, like, here's a bunch of money. No matter what happens, just keep driving. And the guy's like, oh, sweet. And so he pockets the money. And then that's when Hubert jumps out of this tuk-tuk cab at a turn and a bend so that he's no one can see him jumping. So then the car behind him comes right up behind the cab driver and just shoots the whole thing <laughs> with a machine gun. And the guy just like ends up in the hospital or something. They say, I think the whole car flips over and. It's fucked up. Do they say he ends up in the hospital? I don't know. He might be dead. I just remember Uber driving by later and, and sort of shrugging right. when he sees the, the bullet in the car. Such a dick. He like he he's completely unbothered by this. And it's like, dude, 
there's also a scene where like some other guy like jumps off a balcony and he also like shrugs he's like yeah whatever <laughs> so here's the thing this movie actually had some like fun stuff in it it's just that it was so spread out for such a dumb amount of time that it gets really boring. Like by the time that they're in the jungle with boat chases, I was looking at my watch for sure. <laughs> but there is a good thing where there's someone ties a bomb to OSS's car, but they tie it to the battery. So the car has to be on. And then there's like a timer on top of it so that he has something like 30 minutes to drive around. And he doesn't know. Yeah, and he doesn't know. And that's when there's these good, these really good shots of him with like a hood mounted camera driving with the top down and like it cuts back to the bomb hooked up. It's so dopey too, because it, he has all this time and he keeps doing all these like really short drives. <laughs> so like, you know, pick up milk or whatever. No, he's not doing that. But it's, there's no fear exactly, but it is, it's like an amusing piece. Well, and then there's like this third party who has nothing to do with the plot at all, except he's the guy who ends up getting blown up because he steals OSS's <laughs> car. <laughs> yeah, he's just like a stalker. Like, there's never any real explanation. Like, he, you but, know, he's like, yeah. oh, I think he says he's like a known Nazi or something like that. He's also like not menacing. He just looks like a dope. And then he blows himself up and then Hubert shrugs again, you know. <laughs> I don't know if it was just coming from the previous one. I was just shocked at how great this was. Yeah, it's a huge step up, but it's still garbage. <laughs> it is still garbage. And basically, but it was it was popular too. And then so Crow and Matthews tried to get more money from them. And they were like, yeah, screw you. And they dropped him. <laughs> so the next movie, they replaced him with some guy named Frederick Stafford. He was a Czech-born actor who like spoke seven different languages and he was living in Australia and then he changed his name to sound a little more uh, Anglo. So then in 1964, the, the director, Andre uh, Hunabel, discovered Stafford on holiday in Bangkok, actually. And, and now that Kerwin was out of the picture, he was like, hey, would you want to make movies with me? And Stafford was like, yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> so he had no acting experience he was had been a businessman it was like this is like lazenby style you know like mm -hmm. he was just a guy basically that looked vaguely connery-esque and they hired him and so this was his first starring role in uh oss uh, 117 mission for a killer in Furia a Bahia, a Furian Bahia. And this one was the 11th biggest movie uh, of the year in France, <laughs> apparently. Some 2 million people saw it. And this is the best one. Yeah, if you're going to watch one OSS 117 movie, this is the one. And uh, Frederick Stafford, for never having acted before, he's a pretty big improvement on Kerwin <laughs> yeah. Matthews, I have to say. Like, he's definitely not the pretty boy that that guy is, but he's got some personality. Like, there's a little bit of character to him. He looks a little more middle-aged, but he's the uber you should watch. And this one, why don't this also has a strange plot that starts off it actually started off really interesting it was about like people who had been hypnotized into becoming suicide bombers but then like i don't know 
I don't know where that even goes. Like, I mean, it comes up again, but like, basically, he ends up um, going to. He's like on a ski vacation, and then he gets his mission because his like boss literally skis into him on the mountain and is like, "This is the only way I can tell you." And uh, then he ends up flying to Rio, and I was so impressed with the shots of Brazil in this movie. This movie makes Brazil look amazing. Yeah, especially compared to all those Cinema Novo movies we just watched. <laughs> right. Brazil is so ugly in all of those movies, and this is the beautiful tourist version of Brazil. Yeah, and it's just shot really well. I mean, like, there's a ton of these helicopter shots and, uh, you know, these sort of really grandiose shots of, I don't know, everything from just the beautiful seaside to that, that amazing tramway that goes up to the big, uh, what's it, Jesus statue. <laughs> Gosh, I know the name of that thing. Christ the Redeemer. It's beautiful. This movie's really great looking. And I enjoyed that how... Oh, we didn't mention that the about the music, but this guy, um, Michel Manier, did the music for most of these movies. And I, while I have to admit that the tune for his theme song is not exactly memorable, I like that all of these movies would do it in the style of the country that he was hanging out in. Yeah, I definitely couldn't hum the uh, the OSS Santi said <laughs> theme for you right now. <laughs> it's definitely not ba da ba da ba da. Maybe that's part of the problem with these movies. It might be though. I I kind of enjoy it. I mean, like the music is really dopey in all these movies, but it's enjoyable because like that's exactly what I wanted <laughs> out of these. It's totally inappropriate in. Uh, unleashed the, the you know the black and white Kerwin Matthews one like it just is so such goofy music that it doesn't resemble the the like Bond-ish Eurospy music at all and and they learned pretty quickly they had to move away from that goofy tone and I mean still not exactly spy music but it's it's better yeah <laughs> this one has another fairly big star as the female lead, Mylène de Mongeau, who was in, you know, Bonjour Tristesse, and, you know, pretty big French actress at the time. Plot-wise, she's pretty useless. She just, you know, <laughs> sort of shrieks when anything bad is happening. But she's got some chops, and she adds some dollar value to this movie, I guess. But <laughs> I think you're really underselling this movie, because this movie, besides the great location shots and and honestly this movie felt to me grander than the 1960s bonds like the i love the location stuff in this because it's it i mean maybe because it has more personality than oss does <laughs> but it really brings you into this euro spy like headspace if nothing else it's really fun to see the, the locations in this but this movie besides having hypnotized suicide bombers it has a fake doctor that shoots a guy on the surgery table before doing the surgery, <laughs> um, which is totally messed up. And there's a bunch of jazz flute. Hubert gets a much bigger car than any other thing he's been in. <laughs> there is a scene where he has to fool the woman into thinking that he's in the bathroom and he opens up a suitcase of noises that he has pre-recorded. <laughs> and one of them is just literally called toilet noises. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just him like whistling and like brushing his teeth but like oh what could have been 
this is as complicated as the gadgets get in this series. <laughs> like, it's definitely not Bond-level gadgets. You've got a few, mostly having to do with radio devices and being able to hear what people are saying in faraway rooms. But I feel like the little bit of gadgetry we have in these movies is just sort of a them trying to compete a little bit with the Bond movies. Well, with his toilet noises, he basically fools everyone into thinking he's, God knows, like washing every part of his body. It goes on for <laughs> so long. And then he sneaks out of the window and then rounds everyone up and ties them to the bed because they're going to kill him. Or like, I think they shoot the door and then they realize he's not there. and But the sounds are still happening, which is him whistling like the theme tune. <laughs> then he like ties him to a bed and then he leaves the tape on <laughs> And just walks out, which I thought was brilliant. He also leaves the tap running, so there's right a, there's uh, a flood. Really inconsiderate. A good another staple of uh, OSS. Then he flamethrowers a guy in like an office, and then blows up the whole room with a gas leak from the flamethrower, which is also totally mm-hmm. overkill. <laughs> but I have to say, in general, like Bond has no qualms about shooting people. He has a license to kill, and he does it whenever he has an opportunity. I feel like Hubert will, if he can get away with not killing somebody, he does. He'll tie them up instead or knock them, you know, cold cock them and and knock them out. I mean, there's definitely plenty of just murder, like him killing bad guys because he has no choice, but it's not quite as bloodthirsty as, as James Bond. There is zero sex in any of these movies, which is sort of interesting. It's true. Yeah, they're super PG rated until the last one, which plays by different rules. But. Yeah, there, I mean, I think there's <laughs> even a scene in this one where, where like, you know, he saves a, a sexy woman and she says, well, how can I thank you? And, and he's like, mm, I don't know, and like walks away. <laughs> so like, there, there is actually kind of, uh, that was sort of interesting considering how he's incredibly sexist. So it like sort of cancels itself out. Well, oh my gosh, there's a shootout in a plane and the pilot gets shot in the back and then the windows get shot out of this plane and then the plane's going down and everyone's trying to like grapple to get to the pilot, but nobody wants to let anyone else have the power. That's pretty intense and, and wild. Yeah, and then the plane lands in some Amazonian rainforest and they find the witch doctor who's creating this drug that's creating these uh, suicide bombers and there's this huge high budget shootout with lots and lots of soldier type people and machine guns and people getting shot. It's definitely a step above all the other OSS Sondiset movies in terms of budget and action sequences. It ends like Apocalypse Now. (laughs) Yeah. But then it also like ends. It ends honestly. It ends with with him and the lady kissing on the top of some Amazonian waterfalls that I'm sure are very famous, but I don't know the name of. <laughs> Which is a great again a great helicopter shot, but like a really weird ending. <laughs> but I don't. I kind of I like this one. This one like again, it's completely backloaded with all of the best action. He spends, he wastes the first hour of this movie just like walking around being suspicious without actually doing anything about it until like some local agent finally gets in touch with him and, and helps him out. So it's like, if you could honestly re-edit this with what you have and make it like a solid hour and 20 minutes and it would be a great movie. Mm. Like I'm convinced it's the pacing. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> There's still nothing anybody cares about at stake here. There's nothing there, but there's nothing in Bond. 
And Bond manages somehow. Not as far as I'm concerned. But I also would like to point out that if you go to the director's Wikipedia page, Andre Unibel, what you see is that he is most known as a master glass artist. (laughs) (laughs) Secondarily as a film director. And he directed most of these OSS Solendiset movies, but he's apparently far more well-known as uh, somebody who makes fancy glass bowls. Good for him. So uh, Frederick Stafford comes back for a second OSS movie. Called OSS 117, You Only Live Twice, Tokyo Drift. Yeah, Terror in Tokyo. Atuko a Tokyo, which is like heart trump, another like card playing reference, even though these he, he never he plays cards. play a whole lot less <laughs> cards than Bond does. Well, for once, this movie doesn't have any sexy women to pick him up at the airport and starts with an explosion, even though the explosion absolutely makes no sense and is completely useless to the plot of this movie and not even set in Tokyo. But it's referencing one of the better stunts in the previous movie where the the bad guys try and trap Uber by setting these lines of flame across the road and, and Uber ends up just driving through and setting his tires on fire and, and taking <laughs> refuge in the forest. Right. They thought, oh, people love that stunt in the last movie. Let's start the movie with this again. Only Uber sh- shoots the bad guys as they get out of the car in this one or something. Ah, oh, God, what happens in this? Some lady, what's her name? Marina Vladi, who's the star of uh, Two or Three Things I Know About Her, the Godard movie. And, uh, you know, she was in Chimes at Midnight. This is actually right between those two, like, big cinephile touchstones. Is She made this super boring Eurospy movie. And I blame her. Like, I, that was that's <laughs> kind of my problem with the Godard movie, is that she just has no personality. She's just... A blank slate she doesn't emote at all yeah agreed you know she's kind of distinctive looking kind of pretty but you know other than that she's just a french starlet never trust women with large eyes and strangely spaced facial features <laughs> that's what i've learned from this yeah she's like being blackmailed and she has a husband back in America or wherever the heck she's meant to be from. <laughs> she says that she was like out with some people and like if she gets drugged and then they take compromising photos of her, which is like a the, the Yakuza move. And uh, then they blackmail her telling her like, we're going to tell your husband about this. And so I guess the CIA cares <laughs> <laughs> like I don't remember. I'm I'm sure there's a reason for why. Well, some there's an OSS agent that gets murdered at the beginning oh, of yeah, every yeah. one of these movies. I think <laughs> so. Uber is is sent in to figure out what's going on, and uh, yeah, that's how this one starts. I think. I don't know. They all they really all blend together. Oh, there's a there's a missile in this one apparently. Well, mini missiles. They're the like little toy missiles that that can blow up American army bases. Right. Right. Anyhow, who cares? There's nothing that happened. The, the best thing... Okay, there's a couple weird things that happen in this movie. One is that he goes to a strip club, and it is a straight-up strip club. Like, the women are topless. 
even better is that he walks in and he gets handed a camera which everyone's speaking to him in Japanese and he doesn't speak Japanese for once. He doesn't can't communicate very well. And uh, they're like telling him, okay, it's this much to come in and then it's this much to rent the camera. And he's like, I don't, I don't need a camera. And they're like, no, 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 you need the camera. We got that in another movie we watched. I think it's, it's a, a little uh, peek into Japanese culture. <laughs> Japanese strip club culture. The, uh, the Kobayashi <laughs> movie you watched in the, in the last Kiss, Mary Kill episode, I think it was... You take pictures of naked ladies. It's a big money-making thing in, in Japan. It's honestly in great. And this strip club is, there's actually topless chicks in this, which is interesting. For what? What year is, is this? There? Yeah, but but you don't see anything. But it's pretty racy. They, they basically have know. their arms right <laughs> in, covering, you know, anything that's special, but... It didn't register as racy for me at all. <laughs> oh, man. I, th- I, was, I was like, whoa, what the... Heck. It didn't seem any racier to me than, than any of the others, really. Except I do remember the scene you're talking about. But Well, they're all like on a little stage, and it was like a good move where like the camera follows him as he walks basically across this entire venue. So it's like you sort of see these women as they're sort of turning, which is why you never actually get to see anything. So it was well done. But anyhow, he gets started behind the ear and... No, wait, no, that's later on. Oh, my God. The best thing that happens in this movie is when he's, like, asleep in bed. And there's a guy that's, like, watching him from across the street. And he shoots out a poison dart. And it hits right behind his head. And then the guy comes in there to, like, check his kill. And he pulls the bed sheet. And it ends up being the shittiest-looking balloon dummy (laughs) with a wig. An inflatable super spy. It was the funniest thing. And it deflates thing. when he pulls the Oh my the god. Out. It's it's like, it's like, oh my god, it looks so terrible. And then of course, Hubert is standing there like, oh, did you think that was me kind of thing? Oh my god, it was the greatest special effect I've ever seen in my life. What a movie. Probably the one thing we should mention is this movie was not directed by André Unabel. Uh, it was directed by Michel Boiron, who I'm sure he's done some other things, but who cares? <laughs> Um, but interestingly, I mean, not interesting enough to make the movie interesting at all, but it was written by Terrence Young, who is a director of three Bond movies, Dr. Noah from Russia with Love and Thunderball. It was written by him, not based on a Jean Bruce novel. So you'd think, oh, we're getting something a little different here. No, it's exactly the same old crap. There's nothing it, in, in fact, it's a little more boring and nonsensical than some of the others. But now I'm realizing, like, there's so much that is in this that's in You Only Live Twice. But You Only Live Twice actually came out after this. Yeah, that's true. Which is wild. Like, I mean, there's... Yeah, this was 66 and that was 67. So. And, like, the things that are the same is, like, the terrible pacing. Like, I hate You Only Live <laughs> Twice. Like, I think that's such a crap movie. There's, like, the bathhouse scene with giggling women undressing him. There's, like, the just the same old dumb shit that's in that boring-ass movie is in this boring-ass movie. But you know what you also get in both of them? And it just occurred to me now, you've got the female Japanese agent who's actually pretty competent yeah. in both movies. And that's kind of interesting. The other thing is, like, there's a whole scene where, you know, he gets kidnapped, and then they, he's in this room with this, like, really big dude who they later call a sumo wrestler, but, like, he's too thin to be a sumo wrestler. <laughs> and, like, they get into this big fight where it's, like, literally punching through paper walls and, like, 
throwing people around the whole place. And then like the whole thing ends with, oh, that was our secret service guy. He just wanted to like tell you hello and welcome to the country. That's what passes for comedy in these movies. It's so bad. It's so dumb. It's just such a waste of time. If there was more comedy in these movies, they might be worthwhile. I mean, like the Matt Helm movies may technically be worse than some of the better OSS Sunday set movies, but they don't take themselves seriously. These movies are just serious, boring spy action movies <laughs> where nothing interesting happens. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's really not much to say about this one. I mean, eventually her husband shows up and they're separated so it kind of explains the fact that she's a bit of a, a flirt there's a temple scene actually you don't really see that much of japan in this which is also a, a, like a letdown no i think you do i i feel like there's some good cultural stuff in this it was the one thing that kind of held my interest at all it is like surprisingly respectful to its japanese characters which i was shocked to see in the 60s but i guess it's not actually american so the <laughs> french had less uh <laughs> I don't know, but the French are so racist, so who knows? But um, the at least the the Japanese are not the double crossers in this, which is like you know your typical tr- uh, white you know American trope. But the the white chick is, and that was kind of interesting. There's an evil Korean guy, but well, even she has been compromised, and you're gonna she's good, no, she's bad, no, she's good, and that's like the one thing that makes the Bahia movie, the one before this, interesting is you're presented with these three sexy women and trying to determine where each one of them is on the spectrum of good to bad is like at least kind of holds your interest a bit by this movie there it's like oh okay so she's good she's bad she's good it's all the same stuff by the time they get to the missile ship as per all of these movies i've i like i blacked out i don't even remember the (laughs) end of this movie at one point, the organization, the bad guys in the, in this movie, and some of the others too, like, you know, instead of Spectre, we've got the organization in capital letters who are basically the same thing, just creating all sorts of evil plots all the time to do bad things to the world. They have this guy in a moped drive in front of the cop car, and the cop car hits him, and they get out and uh, try and help this guy. And then while while they're helping this guy, the, the bad guys, the organization, steal Marina Vladi away. And of course, Uber has got his spy equipment and saying, uh, you know, watching this whole thing go down. And the, the Japanese uh, female agent is like, we've got to follow these people who've stolen her away. And, and Uber is like, no, you're, you, we have to follow the, the guy in the ambulance, the guy that the, the cops hit. And, and so they, they follow him back to this temple, purely just an excuse for this like absurd fight scene. And then, the, you know, that leads to this unlikely phone tapping like convoluted thing where they actually finally managed to trace the organization back to this place where marina vladi ended up anyway so if they had just followed her in the first place and not listened to uber they would have gotten there without this like you know 25 (laughs) minutes of screen time to just bore the shit out of us right it's sort of a really galling example in this movie but i have to say that Probably all the Bond movies are guilty of exactly the same thing, just not quite as transparently. Well, old Frederick Stafford ended up getting plucked up by Hitchcock to star in um, Topaz, which totally tanked his career, <laughs> his short-lived career. I think actually had a, he was in a couple of things after that, but he 
basically didn't really rise to the glory of OSS, at least in movies. In his death, he died in like an airplane collision, like a, two small airplanes collided above a lake, which I think, again, is a very Euro spy way to die. So the next movie, we have another, yet another Hubert, which is this time American uh, John Gavin. A Hitchcock star. Yeah. Ironically. He was in Psycho. He's the one that Janet Lee is in bed with at the beginning of the that movie, famously. Yeah, he was in Spartacus. He was in Imitation of Life. He went on to do a bunch of stuff. At least he was very involved in Hollywood and not based on his talents at all. <laughs> He's kinda of pretty, I guess that's about, <laughs> about it. Yeah, I think he It's Hollywood, that's all you need. He went on to do more behind the scenes, maybe. But he was the last entry into the Hunibel OSS, right? Yeah. Andre Hunibel is, is back for uh, Pas de Rose pour OSS 77, or OSS 77 double agent, as it's known in English-speaking countries, 1968. And this one has music by our boy Piero Piccioni. <laughs> yeah. Really mediocre music. Crazy, ridiculous score. It's just him noodling on an organ for two hours. There's something about it, though. Like, there's scenes whenever, like, Hubert gets poisoned or something, which happens a lot in this one, because essentially, I what's I don't even know the plot of this either, but that Who he... cares at this point? <laughs> it's so convoluted. Robert Hussein is back as a different bad guy in this one. Yeah, and he's... And I think it's set in Algiers, but it's never, like, really clear where this is set. Somewhere in French North Africa. Well, oh, wait. Oh, my gosh. So what happens with this one is that it, it starts off with... The fact that they, they straight up address the fact that it's a different guy. And the, the way that they address it is by saying that OSS got plastic surgery in order to look like a famous killer. Well, it's, it's so he can infiltrate the organization as this famous killer, uh, I guess. And so then the famous killer but... is wanted to kill, uh, which is when he ends up getting whisked away to wherever he is, Algiers... By a man in a silver jacket with silver hair that reminded me of Bob Odenkirk. <laughs> he has a good line about how everyone's going to get blown to hell or heaven. God will choose. <laughs> it's also interesting how he's very clearly homosexual and he's got his little boy toy there who's his head killer. Kurt Jurgens is the bad guy. He's in a later, he's in a Roger Moore Bond movie, uh, The Spy Who Loved Me, he's the bad guy. Well, I mean, the whole this whole movie takes such a nosedive into not only the bland and boring, but, like, the intensely sleazy. <laughs> the fact that, like, you know, everyone's sort of coded into being creepy and bigoted. <laughs> <laughs> There's also, like, the dialogue in this also goes straight on into, like, softcore porn style. There's a, a sexy woman doctor who he says, hello, sexy woman doctor, basically, and then he tricks her into like, listen to my heart. So she puts her head on his chest. And then he says, you know, like, oh, is there a, there's a problem with my heart? And she says, oh, it seems fine to me. And he's like, well, doctor, what would you prescribe? You know, like, and then they start making out like, 
I think actually this is the first time he has sex, right? A couple times actually in this movie because he gets caught with a sexy lady and he's naked. Actually, that was the best part of the whole movie is a bunch of cops run in when he (laughs) is in bed with a lady and he like karate chops all of them until finally they they corner him with guns and they they say like, you know, all right, hands up. But he like has one hand holding a newspaper over his junk. So he has to put his hands up and the newspaper falls and then he like shrugs and winks at the camera. <laughs> yeah. It's also worth mentioning that that lady doctor you're talking about is Luciana Paluzzi, who's uh, the, the bad Bond girl in Thunderball and also in uh, another movie we watched for the show, uh, Muscle Beach Party. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> Only the classiest. But yeah, so the gimmick in this mostly is that besides him being pretending to be this famous killer who gets whisked away to kill some Arab guy, which and and by the way, I mean, like this is so obnoxious towards Arabs. (laughs) This is like everyone who's Arab is a total dunce, jerk, idiot, and they're constantly being made fun of. It's like such a stark change from the other films and how it treats the foreigners well, it's a comedy. It's It definitely has a lot more comic beats than any of the other movies. Yeah, real comedy, air quotes. <laughs> but the thing is that basically they, they give him a poison and he has to get the antidote every single day at 5 p.m. or else he'll die. So like that's how they keep him in, I guess, to force him to do the job is that he has to come back to Dr. Sin who I actually loved in this. He's the best part of this whole movie. Well, he's virtually indistinguishable from the other character that he played. There's a great scene in the end where he's uh, like, OSS doesn't, you know, he's of course goes off the rails and doesn't do the job and then tries to come back and get the injection for himself, but ends up getting caught. And there's this great scene with Hubert just on the floor, basically dying in agony, which is what they described would happen. And Robert Hossin is just watching him peacefully watching him die (laughs) like minute by minute and it's actually it's really good it's like a really great bad guy scene which you know of course doesn't last nearly long enough and they move past it pretty fast yeah let's move past this movie pretty fast (laughs) (laughs) i loved uh piccone's score in this because it was just so cheesy but when like whenever hubert is poisoned and he's like kind of like walking around in a daze the score just goes so wild. Like there's a one scene in particular, the first time he gets drugged and knocked out and the score just goes from this, like, again, this like really corny music to this, like totally like it, it's like he took a, like did a line of Coke and then just kept on at the <laughs> organ. It's the weirdest. Like, I love it. It's just so sleazy and so crazy. Yeah. Isn't there's one scene I got to mention. I can't I can't not mention is besides the fact that this whole thing was so bland and boring, but there's one scene where the bad guy with the silver jacket is talking in like Disney code and I literally had no idea what was happening. <laughs> oh yeah, Mickey Mouse and Goofy. Yeah. And, yeah. He's like what a pity that Mickey Mouse will never eat his cheese. But Snow White has married Mickey Mouse and we've lost the guard and Minnie Mouse. And you're like, what the fuck? Like, I totally, completely lost the thread of this to the point where it was honestly just as funny as the remakes. Like, who like who in their right mind thought this was a good idea? And I don't even care if it was meant to be funny, which I'm sure it was. But it's such a failed joke that it's it was genuinely hilarious. So I guess they got me there. 
But yeah, no, it's terrible. It's such a clear and stark drop, and, and it was a total failure. <laughs> and actually, John Gavin, who then, you know, was dropped, there was never, there was basically nothing else until this, uh, the, the last one we're going to briefly mention here. But John Gavin was actually offered the role of James Bond after this for Diamonds Are Forever. But then Sean Connery got lured back at the last moment because they upped his salary to some nutty amount. And so then they dropped old John Gavin. That's a relief. <laughs> it is. It like really is. He, w- he would have wrecked the best Sean Connery Bond movie. It is the best Sean Connery Bond movie. I will fight anyone. But yeah, so then following that failure was basically what happened is there's a producer who is called Pierre Calfon was able to secure the character rights for OSS 117 because it had done so poorly. Even in that one year, there were, everyone was like, I guess, trying to just sell it off for whatever money they could get at that point. And so then we have OSS 117 takes a vacation. holidays as it's uh, was known in some places <laughs> 1969 this, so this is the one where they were working from a script that was co-written by josette bruce the wife of uh, the original creator of oss i find it really hard to believe there was a script at all for this movie <laughs> me too because this is one of these movies where they claimed that they were trying to make a parody but uh, it's like when they talk about the room as meant to have been a parody and you're like, no, I don't think you were. Nah, made. <laughs> you tried to make a real movie. You just failed completely because you're completely incompetent. Completely. The incompetence on display in this movie is really impressive. I actually was sort of suckered in, in the first, you know, 10, 15 minutes of this thing thinking, Oh, this is a brilliant, surreal take on this Euro spy business. But no, it's really just that like the people who made this movie had no idea what they were doing and had no money, and it's just a pile of garbage. Luke Miranda <laughs> is Uber in this one, and he's just like this big piece of meat who is not even that pretty, no. but I guess pretty enough to have somebody cast him as OSS Sondisset. He goes to Brazil again. The version we watched, like the, the, the transfer we saw was terrible, so it was hard to tell if it had some of the touristic qualities of the, of the earlier Brazil movie, but it's it looked terrible and spent a lot of time on sort of the main strip in, in Rio, just at the trashy clubs. And I didn't even take notes for this movie because it was just so bad. It was so terrible. It's like he shows up to have his vacation at his aunt's chateau, where he immediately gets knocked over the head and some guy that looks honestly, I I honestly couldn't tell if it was the same actor because he looks... It was the same actor. Exactly the same, but like, but somehow weirder, but like there was something (laughs) slightly off about him. They don't explain why there's someone that looks just like him as far as I can tell, but then he like sort of walks around and talks about how he doesn't like eating and gets bit by a parrot until the real one wakes up and then kills him. But like, that's the most exciting part of this movie. And that's the first 10 minutes. 
because from there i god knows what happens like i literally don't know what happens in this movie it's like incoherent it's edited almost like somebody on letterbox said it was like godard style and i was like that's actually kind of funny because there's a lot of these insert shots of other characters because you've clearly forgotten who they are and, and why you're seeing this well the best part is halfway through the movie there's like text on the screen trying to explain right. to you what's happened up to this point in this movie and it, it doesn't help clearly the people were making it up as they go along there are like three different lead actresses in this movie and they're in like three completely different movies <laughs> like it's I, I have no idea what any of these like sections of this movie have to do with each other like Elsa Martinelli is you know a pretty big name I guess in 1969 couldn't get the Hollywood roles anymore but she's She's in the first part when he first gets to Rio and she's his uh, famous actress girlfriend and she just sort of disappears and he moves on to somebody else and then later moves on to another lady and I don't know what any of these parts of this movie have to do with any other part. I kept hoping that its lack of sense would, would continue to be as entertaining as the first 10-15 minutes of total illogic were but it no, it's just a sloppy mess. My favorite scene is when he's on a porch with one of his ladies and there's a sniper in in the trees and you see through the sniper scope him aiming at Hubert but he doesn't take the shot because like a leaf is in his way. Yeah. Literally <laughs> a leaf, like not even a branch. Like it's literally a leaf is the only thing stopping him. And he keeps acting like, mm, I can't, can't get this clear shot. <laughs> and you're like, what? <laughs> like until the point where he manages somehow to freaking miss and goes full on. Like he hates these cans step away from these cans <laughs> where he starts yeah. just shooting all of the, the liquor bottles that happen to be like yeah. five feet away from him. <laughs> and then there's a bunch of nudity that makes no sense other than they could get away with it in 69. This movie, what I will, we will say actually it was, it was released in the seventies. So we're pulling another, um, as a brisky point, but yeah, it's terrible. And it killed the whole franchise. <laughs> this was such a failure that they didn't get anything else for decades until, uh, Michelle Hazanavicius did his far superior parody. So yeah, like forty years later, <laughs> I can't believe this movie got released theatrically at all. Like, if I paid money <laughs> to see this movie and and this is what I got, I would be so upset. Like, this is not a movie. This is just a bunch of shots that somebody tried to assemble into like something resembling a movie as like z level as the 1963 oss set is like at least it has a plot like you can sort of follow what's going on but this last one takes a vacation is totally incoherent it's pure shit like it basically makes you wonder if this was like a tax shelter for somebody <laughs> It's not even, like, just a bad movie. It's, like, not a movie. I very rarely will say, like, something is not cinema. <laughs> but I'm going to go full Scorsese and say that this this is not cinema. This is, like, a bunch of people probably drugged out of their mind. Like, it all, it feels like in the end they ran out of footage. It's a mess. It's a to complete and total utter mess. And it's amazing that these OSS movies genuinely took this, like, perfect arc <laughs> from, like, <laughs> mediocre... To like 
amusing if not not very great but amusing and like fun at least to then like full-on like dog shit (laughs) just a perfect you and believe me if it sounds like we're having fun talking about these movies it's because they're a whole lot more fun to talk about than to actually watch it's a grueling slog to get through these things (laughs) It's so true. Don't do it. If you are at all curious, go for the Bahia one, and that's it. Don't even think about watching any of the others. Go go straight for the Jean Dujardin versions, because there's some serious entertainment value there. But these are terrible. And I have to say, Jenna, I don't think I can watch any more <laughs> of these bootleg Bond things. The next one is going to be far more entertaining, and I promise. I got one in mind. What's it going to be? What? <laughs> Give me a clue. Like, how... How can you possibly redeem this bootleg Bond series we're doing? Listen, Bart, I'm going to tell you that one of the things that I genuinely like about subjecting myself to the pure torture of watching crap things is that to me, and I'll never understand fully. I mean, like, I've definitely seen movies where I've walked out angry and stayed angry, may may even have ruined a day. If not a week of just being so furious about like this stupid freaking movie. But at the end of the day, I kind of enjoy having even had that experience. Mm. (laughs) And there's something just pure masochism that that I, I enjoy at least being able to laugh about how much I hated these. (laughs) I enjoy being able to talk about the couple of moments in which I genuinely looked up from my phone (laughs) while scrolling (laughs) through online shopping while watching these movies. Something that I will say, Asterix, I try very hard never to do when watching movies. I'm pretty good about it typically, but these were impossible. It was impossible to not clean my entire apartment while watching these movies. But that's the beauty of them, man. I hear what you're saying. To make it through a terrible movie has its own kind of pleasure. But you made me sit through (laughs) six of these things, 12 hours of terrible, terrible ripoffs of movies that aren't even good to begin with. I feel like I learned a lot about France. (laughs) He's not even French. He's American. I know. That was so disappointing. That was genuinely a disappointment. Like, you guys couldn't even find a French guy. If we keep this bootleg bond... (laughs) thing going i'm picking the next batch of movies i'm okay there are a few that i like modesty blaze we haven't talked about that yet and that's the greatest film ever made that's in the next episode i i I get i got a handful of these things i would love female bootleg female bonds that's its own genre yeah but i'm sure that so many of them are terrible too i don't know i mean we have i'm gonna pick the good ones i'm gonna find i'm gonna we're gonna do like creme de la creme bond ripoffs we're gonna do casino royale we're going to do Danger Diabolique, Branded to Kill, you know, the good stuff. I like all of those movies. If that doesn't renew my interest. Podcast over. <laughs> yeah, podcast over. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for listening, at least, to our suffering. And just know that a piece of Bart died today. Yeah, I, I, I don't mind suffering for all y'all. <laughs> Makes me feel like Jesus Christ. (laughs) Exactly. I died for your sins this episode.
You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.